Hello, this is We Dig Plants on Heritage Radio Network on the internet. We are broadcasting from two shipping containers at Roberta's Pizza, 261 Moore Street in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Uh, the show is produced by Jack Inslee and engineered by Nat Weiner. Today's sponsor is Whole Foods Market, and you have just been listening to our theme music done by supercompuglobal.com, our great friend uh, Paul Watling. So I'm Alice Marcus. And I'm Carmen DeVito. And you are listening to We Dig Plants. Um, we're a garden design firm in uh, Brooklyn, New York. Um, we do installation and maintenance. And this show aims to bring the culture to horticulture. So um, if you'd like to learn about us, you can go to groundworksgardens.com or uh, join our Facebook page, Groundworks Inc. We Dig Plants. So today's show, we're going to talk about books um, and horticultural libraries. And we have a great friend as our guest today, Catherine Powis, from the Horticultural Society of New York. It's one of the great old cultural institutions in New York, founded in 1900. And the Society's founding members included J.P. Morgan and Lewis Comfort Tiffany, um, Wow. Among, yeah, <laughs> pretty amazing among its earliest members. And the goal of the society was to further the love and knowledge of horticulture through informative monthly meetings, formal lectures, and seasonal flower shows. You all remember the New York Flower Show. Right? Yes. Yeah. Well, Alice and I, full disclosure here, Alice and I met Catherine when we worked at the Horticultural Society of New York 15 years ago, and she helped us tremendously as we searched through tombs of information for varying projects. It was also with Catherine's help that we found our logo, our image, our company logo for Groundworks in her library, uh, copyright free. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, welcome, Catherine. We're so glad you could join us. And we thought we'd ask you some questions about the library and what you do daily um, there. How did you become a horticultural librarian? Well, thanks, Carmen. Thanks, Alice. It's really very neat to be here. This is my first time in a shipping container. <laughs> And I oh, you don't live in one like I do? Like I'm on CSI. <laughs> um, but um, I guess the answer to that question is that I got involved very indirectly with horticultural librarianship. I grew up with an appreciation for parks and nature, which I certainly owe to my parents. And when I lived in Flushing, I had a small backyard garden. Mm -hmm. uh, when my next door neighbor wasn't plaguing me, I enjoyed it greatly. I worked in a medical library in Flushing, and then an academic science library. Uh, one time, I took a class at the Horticultural Society, and it was on trees and shrubs, and I saw the library. Uh -huh. And boy, did that image of a somewhat neglected library stick in my mind. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I think within a year or so, the job was listed, okay. and I jumped on it, uh, always with the intention of going back to medical libraries, which were really exciting places to be at the time. Okay. But um, I think I blinked, and now it's about 20 years later. Oh, good for us. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So what's the history of the Hort Library and of the Horticultural Society at large? As you said, uh, the organization was founded in 1900, along with other cultural uh, institutions in the city. Uh, and the Horticultural Society is all about helping New Yorkers to grow um, from cultivating plants and gardens to learning about the interdependence between plants and people 
and building sustainable communities, um, improving urban life through gardening. The library was opened in 1924, and it's the only library specializing in gardens and gardening. It's open to the public, and that large category, gardens and gardening, encompasses cultivating plants and gardens, the art of garden and landscape design and landscape architecture, botanical illustration, gardening with children, horticultural therapy, urban farming, uh, and I think the fact that the library exists all these years indicates how very serious the Horticultural Society is about sharing information about gardening with all of New York. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about who uses the library today and what the public can gain from using its resources? Okay, I have to start there by telling you a new audience for the Horticultural Society's library, which is kids. Um we have Pam Ito teaching a class on botany uh-huh. to six, seven, and eight-year-olds. Uh, they're learning right in the Horticultural Society's library. They're learning about desert, rainforest, uh, deciduous, and evergreen plants. And at the end of the class, I read something very special from the juvenile collection. And by the way, I'm getting a lot of help with this from my husband, who's a pre-K teacher. Oh. <laughs> giving me some really good pointers for dealing with kids. <laughs> That's good. Uh, I can highly recommend, if you have children or just an interest in uh, conveying these ideas and concepts to children, uh, two books that we've read just recently. One is called Desert Giant. It's a nonfiction work about the saguaro cactus. Mm-hmm. And one little girl piped up at the end of that session, oh, do you know the book called Cactus Hotel, which is an amazingly similar book, um, which we do have also in the library. So thanks, Lily. That was very good of you to share that with us. And uh, the other one I want to mention is The Great Kapok Tree, which is a fictional story about this rainforest tree that gets to be 150 feet tall. And uh, both stories are very similar in that they tell us about the wildlife and the people that um, use the trees to survive. Cool. So you you get a lot of use from um, designers and decorators, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, We certainly do. Um, We offer lectures and workshops which bring in uh, garden and landscape designers, people who are working professionally, but also the general public is interested in these programs as well. In fact, the fact is any uh, activity, any program at the Horticultural Society attracts people to the library, brings them right in where they uh, see that the library is there and often pull books from the shelves or sit and look through the magazines. We had an artist talk at our gallery just last week, and I spoke to one artist who was absolutely astounded that the library is open to the public, that she's welcome to come back, and she was taken with our our botanical illustration books. We have a very popular film series, and with uh, as with all events, when people are waiting for a program to begin, the natural thing to do is poke around in the library. And yeah. as the librarian, there's nothing I like more than to see that going on. I mentioned landscape architects. We had Ken Smith in recently. Yeah, um, we attended that. Yeah, yeah. that it was, was great. great. He was, was terrific. Sure. It was wonderful to work with him. 
and the New York chapter of the American Society of Landscape Architects. Mm -hmm. uh, they are our most recent partners. Uh, upcoming is a program on Moroccan courtyards and gardens. And again, oh, we think this that. will appeal to professionals, but also to the general public. And we also have on February 9th, a culinary historian coming in. She's going to talk about the new taste of chocolate. And there will also mm. be tastings. So we know this is going to appeal to a very broad audience. Uh, we have plant societies that meet at the Horticultural Society, um, the Rose Society, the Rock Garden Society, and Ikebana, a long-term uh, associate with the Horticultural Society. All their members um, come in for their programs, and several of them sit and read at the library beforehand. We just started a book club, and so that brings more people to the library. And, um, of course, researchers are really very savvy, and they will find without difficulty a special collection like ours. But our Internet presence, and by that I mean our online catalog, brings others to our library. Um, we get lots of requests for archival information. That's the historical records of the society. And I'm very fortunate to have Joan Nichols, who is our volunteer archivist, handle most of those questions. And, of course, we get local authors. We had Karen Ruel come in working on a book called The Tree about an elm tree growing in Madison Square Park. And she had run into trouble because the elm tree, she was told, did not grow from seed. And the whole crux of her story was that it could indeed grow from seed. And what happened is that we located the fact that while you cannot grow American elm trees from seed, you can grow the English elm tree from seed. And that saved her book. So it was the library and your help that really helped her bring that to light. Yes, and Good. particularly Michael uh, Durr's book, uh, The uh, Propagation of Woody Plants. I, that's one of my yeah, favorite books. Yeah, me too. So we're going to take a break now, and um, we'll be back in a second. Thanks. We are uh, we dig plants. We are talking with Catherine Powis from the Horticultural Society of New York. Um, this is uh, Heritage Radio Network. We are sponsored by Whole Foods Market, and we're broadcasting from two shipping containers. Um, so, Catherine, just to pick up on our conversation, um, one quick question that I, I have to ask: This is why we're talking about the library and its use. Um, why not just Google things? Like, what about Wikipedia? Why is a library better? I mean, of course, I know the answer to this, but I want to hear from the librarian. Okay. You've heard a lot about Google. Um, I'm sure you've heard that not everything is on Google. Uh, but my son reminds me constantly, it's just a matter of time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you've heard, too, that you have to be kind of careful about what you read 
uh, on the internet and check the authority. Right. All true. And um, it's very easy to be overwhelmed when you're checking Google um, because there's so much out there. Right. And much of it could be ads. As a matter of fact, you may find yourself picking up information that's really just a commercial ad. That's mm-hmm. true. Then there's the whole debate about information and knowledge, the difference between information and knowledge, the difference between skimming some quick bits of information and reading deeply. But, in fact, there's really no question that Google searching and its plan to digitize everything changes so much for libraries. Right. right. And yet, and yet, the culture of libraries... And the romance of the book, you know, that whole idea that you're curling up with the book, you're holding it. I you're know. Feeling smelling those pages. It. You can't curl up with a Kindle. It. I'm sorry. <laughs> you're dog-earing it. it. It's very hard to predict what's going to happen to the culture of libraries and yeah. books in general. And I read with interest um, a cultural critic in the Times. I guess he's really a cultural technology critic. His name is David Carr, and he's thrilled with the new Kindle competitor, as a matter of fact. And then there's a new book that may have caught your eye. It's called You Are Not a Gadget by this feller Lanier, who's a uh, techie maven. Um, So the experts cannot predict what's going to happen to books and libraries. But the fact is that the library is a physical space, a place that you can come to for guidance if you want it. Mm -hmm. You can read quietly. Um, attend a lecture, browse, you can learn new things at your own speed, you can meet like-minded people, pursue a different career. I think we're talking about people contact. You may come to a library and want to read quietly by yourself, but there's something luring you, and um, that's the need to be around to other people, mm-hmm. even if you're doing your own yes. thing. Right. That's why the, the people do their work on their laptops in cafes rather than in their living room. Right. They're quietly working, but they're, they're around other people. Mm-hmm. They want that contact. That stimulation. Right? Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that's particularly true of people who are developing an interest in gardening mm-hmm. or or perhaps already very committed to gardening, they like to share that kind of information. Exactly. Yes. Yes. So what's the most prized book in your collection at the Hort Society? Well, I thought about this, and I realized it isn't a book at all. It's our bound periodicals. Okay. All right? Um, For example, we have on the shelf the Gardener's Chronicle, which is an English weekly that began in the 1840s, and it's right in our reading room. So you can easily have access to it. Can I touch it? Yes, you can touch it. (laughs) It's still being published since the 1940s. Um, No, not this particular publication. It's gone through many titles um, over the years. But um, about a year ago, a biology professor stopped in, and he had just been to the Irish Hunger Memorial down Mm on uh, Vesey Street. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, how interesting that you have Gardner's Chronicle because I remember that that's one of the first publications that carried the story about the Irish potato famine. And he said, but I I don't remember the year. And he said, well, 
maybe you have a book called The Advance of the Fungi. Uh-huh. And it's the kind of title that's stuck in my mind. And I said, we do have the advance of the fungi. And I pulled it's it like in. It's like a science fiction movie. Yeah, movie. It's a wonderful book. Uh, anyway, we found out that on September 13th, 1845, this English weekly carried the story. And I think it's so amazing that the the English were producing this publication on a <laughs> weekly basis That's astounding. prior to the digital age. Just Does it have advertising? It, yes. It had advertising. Full of advertising. Wow. Yes. yes. Um, and I want to read you this rather chilling notice. Um, again, this is September 13th, 1845. We stopped the press with very great regret to announce that the potato murrain, that's how the fungal disease was uh, refer to, unequivocally declared itself in Ireland. Where will Ireland be in the event of a universal potato rot? So everybody wow. knew how dependent the Irish were yeah. on yeah. potatoes. They were making their bread from potato flour. Right. Everybody knew this was a tragic occurrence. So you can read this online for sure. Wow. And you can find it in the book, The Advance of the Fungi, but it's kind of special to be able to pull it off the shelf. Right. Yes. And your collection is, some of it is archived. Is that right? Yes. So you can access it from online? You can tell what titles we're holding okay. in the library. Okay. The books themselves are not digitized. This is okay. where my son comes in because he says, it'll be tomorrow, Mom. They'll all be digitized. Wow. Mm. <laughs> Maybe he could come and help me with some of my computer issues. <laughs> um. So um, what is the first gardening book in history? When was it written, and was it a how-to book? Let me start with the first American garden book, which was Bernard McMahon's American Garden Calendar. It was published in 1806, and McMahon was an Irishman who settled in Pennsylvania. He developed a thriving nursery business, and he knew Thomas Jefferson. His book was the standard encyclopedia for 50 years. Oh, wow. And you have a copy in the library? Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Before that, um, Americans relied on English books, uh, especially Philip Miller's Gardener's Dictionary, which uh, was first published in 1731 and went through eight editions. Um, We don't have the first edition of that book, but we do have the 1767 book in okay. our collection. And um, the first garden book printed in England was by Thomas Hill. And I just love the title. I think you will too. It was published or printed in 1563. And it's called A Most Brief and Pleasant Treatise Teaching How to Dress, So and Set a Garden. Aww. Isn't that Aww. really That's proper? A great title. <laughs> wow. Can you imagine that today? If that were... No. <laughs> Um, okay, has anyone ever tried to steal a book from you from um, the library? All all libraries lose books. I've never seen this happen. Okay. It has happened, but not, not very That's much. That's good. Yeah. That's good. Okay. And what is your collection worth? Um, we if, did, did have it evaluated probably about 10 years ago, and at that time, maybe $250,000. Um, we don't have rare books in the collection. The books I mentioned are... Uh, difficult to find, but they're not rare books. They're not folios from the 16th century. Like the Morgan Library. Yes. Yeah. yeah. 
So where does the library get its books? Uh, you know, do people donate it or do publishers donate? How does that work? Well, I only have a very small budget for books. So I even go to the Strand and find bargains there. Um, oh, we really? We do lots of author events. So I do get books from publishers on a review basis. And um, many quality books are donated. Recently, a library committee member who is a garden writer herself gave us about 40 titles, including several on Asian garden design. And a Hmm. few years ago, another library committee member just about gave us her whole collection of uh, garden and landscape design books. She's a garden historian. She had assembled this terrific collection. She gave it to us, and it really did fill in gaps in our collection. Great. Okay. So I think we have to take a break. Yes. And when we come back, um, Catherine's going to talk about some of her uh, favorite books and books that she recommends that every gardener should have. Welcome to We Dig Plants. Welcome back. Uh, We are on the Heritage Radio Network, and that was, of course, Gardening at Night by R.E.M. We're with Catherine Powers, our good friend, the librarian at the Horticultural Society of New York. And I have another question for you, Catherine, before we get into our favorite books. Um, What is the weirdest question that you've been asked as a librarian? Um, Maybe not weird, but certainly far out. Okay. (laughs) One day a gentleman came in, and he was tall, very, very skinny, very sharp features, very dark eyes, and he announced that he's writing a book about trees. (laughs) And I said, you are in the right place. (laughs) And then he proceeded to tell me that his trees were imaginary trees. Oh, no. Was this Bob Ross, the painter? (laughs) (laughs) And I said to myself... This is one of New York City's characters, and this is why I love being in New York City. Um, Joe Bogatz actually did the research for his book. Uh, he didn't find a publisher, but he self-published a field guide to imaginary trees, and I just thought I'd read a little bit. Great. This is a chapter called The Schmoo Pear. <laughs> it's Pyrus Capi. Native to Schmoon Valley, this low-growing tree has spread everywhere in the United States. Its adaptability to almost any kind of soil, climate, or other condition is more than matched by its obliging nature. A smooth bark and veiny serrated leaves are unremarkable, providing no hint of the tree's extraordinary character. One is astonished to find that this pear contains neither seeds nor pit. Unlike such other angiosperms as the apple, cherry, and other pests, this variety reproduces without flowers 
and the closest examination will fail to reveal any bud, calyx, corolla, stamen, carpal, or the like feature. Always ripe, its harvesting requires nothing more than extending one hand into which the pear falls readily. Um, and he goes on. Against the historical background of the Shmoo pear stands out in marked contrast. It demands no effort and seems designed only to accommodate. Of the fruits, of the, I'm sorry, of the fruits' protein qualities as an edible, there appears to be no end. It will be whatever wants it to be. Consider an example from such a tree in the yard of a home in Montpelier, Vermont. The vegetarian owners took fruit that tasted variously, like Brussels sprouts, carrots, squash, onions, broccoli, avocado each deliciously. Upon the sale of the property to transplanted Texans, whose lives revolved around football and barbecues, the pear tasted like buffalo chicken wings and baby back ribs. <laughs> That's awesome. When the Texans in turn moved on, giving way to an elderly lady with a weight problem, the blessed tree adapted perfectly to her attempt to follow the Atkins diet. From its branches now came sustenance rich in protein, devoid of carbohydrates, and yet irresistible to her palate. Wow. I want that book. I want that pear. (laughs) Wow. It's everything you want it to be. And Monsanto's working on it (laughs) as we speak. (laughs) Governments are working on it. (laughs) Sorry. I diverge. Uh, Okay. Catherine, what are a couple of books that you think should be in every gardener's collection? Okay. Um, Everybody, I think, wants a standard encyclopedia that they can refer to. And the best one I know is The Garden Primer by Barbara Damrush. Mm -hmm. Um, It's comprehensive, and it's a how-to book by a really seasoned expert, um, not a gaggle of editors. Barbara and her husband have been practicing organic gardening in Vermont for over 20 years. The book first came out in 1988. It was newly revised in 2008, and it covers everything from flowers to veggies, uh, everything in between as well, including propagating and pruning. Barbara spoke to the library, uh, spoke for the library, Um, last year, and I can tell you she's the real deal. Another book I recommend, especially to city gardeners, is The Natural Shade Garden by Ken Drews, because most city gardeners cope with shade. But then again, so do uh, suburban and country gardeners. In fact, there's a big interest in woodland gardens because of their appeal uh, to those looking for a naturalistic style. Isn't mm-hmm. Ken Drews um, also a photographer? Yes, he is. And I was going to mention that not only does he have the plant expertise to tell you where to put the right plant, but his photographs will surely seduce and inspire you. Uh, Ken, too, has spoken at the Horticultural Society's library. And um, anyone serious about gardens probably wants a good perennial book. There's lots of perennial books out there. Yes. A personal favorite uh, happens to be Alan Armitage's book. Um, he's a wonderful opinionated gardener, something like uh, Michael Durr, mm-hmm. who uh, tells you just as it is, which is what you want to know. Um, he comes from more of an academic Yes. Sort of background, right? Yes. Is it the University but of the Georgia? Real thing. Yeah, right. I think yeah. so. Um, my niece was visiting from Paris, Kate, and um, 
she had some basic information, some basic background in horticulture, and I gave her Armitage book on perennials, and she adored it. Yeah. She would read passages to me because he has such a way with words, and she wasn't doing much reading in English. So for her, it was a real treat. And he's very frank in his description. He's very frank. In fact, uh, my sister and I both fell in love with plume poppies at the same time, and I'd been reading from people like Margaret Roach, for example, that they're invasive. I mean, everyone's pretty open mm-hmm. about this fact. Um, but what uh, Alan calls them uh, is, he says they're thugs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that he doesn't mince words. very reluctant to plant it. Of course, we, we both bought the plant. My sister plopped hers right in the ground because that's who she is. But he gave me the idea to put mine in a container. Right. So we'll find out what happens yeah, there. It'll I'm be the really war. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I like um, I like to have a, a books written by American gardeners. Yes. There's a lot of English perennial books. I have them so in my collection. Books, right. Yes. And they and the the thing about it is not only are you you know you're hearing about cultural practices in England, but you can't find the plants that are mentioned. Right. Yes. You can't find them in commerce. Yes. Right. So that's what makes it challenging. very misleading. Yeah. Because exactly. often they're, they're pushed as American garden books. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Well, the market. Mm-hmm. You know. And another book I'd like to mention, especially if you're growing veggies uh, and you're concerned about uh, doing as much veggie growing as you can because you can really pack in those veggies, is a book uh, by Mel Bartholomew. It's called um, Square Foot Gardening. Mm -hmm. And that, too, was a classic when it came out some years ago, and it's been newly revised. Oh, good. Okay. Well, I'd like to, if we have a few minutes, I'd like to mention a book that I really like by Michael Durr, and it's Durr's Hardy Trees and Shrubs. Um, Alice and I, you know, um, use reference books all the time in our work. We're constantly looking for new plants to integrate. And when somebody suggests a plant or an architect uh, wants a certain plant in a plan, in a garden, we like to go to Durr and um, see what, what the real deal is on How that plant. How big it's going to get. How big is it really going to get? Because, you know, plant catalogs, just like nursery catalogs, just like every other advertising, you know, focuses on the positive attributes and maybe not... Some of the negative the attributes. Of, or the realistic attributes. Yes. You know. Yeah. So we love Michael Durr's book, uh, Durr's Hardy Trees yeah. and Shrubs. That is actually right next to my computer. And I'm looking at it probably three times a week. Yeah. Is there any other book, Catherine, that you'd like to mention? Um, well, I did mention before that we'd started a book club. And we started with a really great new writer. Her name is Novella Carpenter. Her book is called Farm City, the Education of an Urban Farmer. Um, she grew up um, uh, on a farm. Uh, her parents were hippies. Mm-hmm. So she has an unusual background to begin with. She's <laughs> a student of Michael Pollan. Mm. And her book is... Um, a terrific read. I, I don't usually use that expression. What I really mean, I think, is that it's great literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happens in the process of raising uh, chickens and turkeys and rabbits and pigs is that she learns a great deal about the process, but she learns a great deal about herself. She develops an understanding of her parents and how they struggled, mm-hmm. and she learns a great deal from her ghetto neighbors. Right. It's a very urban setting. Um, and it's good for any New Yorker, I think. Yeah. So. Well, I'd like to thank Catherine for being with us today. Um, it's really great to reconnect with you again after all these years. 
And I recommend that you all visit her at the library at the Horticultural Society of New York. We're going to list, we're going to put the link to the library on our Facebook fan page. Um, You've been listening to We Dig Plants on Heritage Radio Network. We'd like to thank Roberta's Pizza at 261 Moore Street in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And we'd like to thank our sponsor, Whole Foods Market. Uh, Today's show was produced by Jack Inslee and engineered by Nat Wiener. Please join us on our Facebook fan page, Groundworks Inc., We Dig Plants. We'd love your feedback and any ideas and questions that you might have. Thanks for listening and happy gardening. Thank you.